Well, after a break of about a month, when we were looking at Advent passages, specifically from the Pentateuch, we return now to the series that we have been undergoing for the past few years. And we find ourselves at the end of Matthew chapter 17. I thought it would be helpful since it's been about a month that we just kind of refresh our memories as to where we are in the gospel. And um, I have um, given us um, an outline on page four, and we're gonna take a minute to review where we are in Matthew's gospel. And as you can see from the outline on page four, the title of the meditation today is Redemptive Encounters Far Below the Mountain. You remember a few weeks ago, Jesus was on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was a glorious moment. Moses and Elijah were there. Uh, Peter devoutly stuck his foot in his mouth and um, wanted to make the occasion blessed for some reason that people are yet trying to understand. And God um, uh, rebuked him and drew attention to the only thing that mattered, which was Jesus on the mountain in his glory. We came down the mountain and now we're at the bottom of the mountain. And in our passage today, we have three encounters with people at the bottom of the mountain. A father with a complaint, a Messiah with a death wish, and a little touch of reality, door-to-door -door canvassers with an ask. Well, where, we are in, where are we in Matthew's Gospel? If you uh, look on page five, um, I hope your memory will be jogged. I haven't given us an outline of the whole of Matthew. Well, I, I have, but I've given in a little bit more detail the passages that we've been going through recently. And we've noticed that Matthew has five major speeches, five major discourses, which echo the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. Uh, Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Jesus is the new Jeremiah. Jesus is the new Isaiah. Jesus is Elijah. He is, uh, he is a, a comprehensive fulfillment of the Old Testament, but one of Matthew's favorite figures is that of Jesus as the new Messiah and also of the new Moses. I should say the Messiah and the new Moses. And according to France, the, the passage, our, our um, gospel, can be organized geographically. So after an introduction, we had some time in Galilee when Jesus gave the first three books of his Pentateuch, if you will. And then where we've been for the past recent while is in chapters 1621 to 2034, and we're going to be there for another few weeks. And there Jesus moves from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the important thing for us to remember as we come to this passage, this portion in Matthew's gospel, is that Jesus is focusing away from his more uh, public ministry in Galilee, which was characterized by the giving of miracles and the giving of his first three speeches. And he has dropped a bomb on them. And you see it under P, the Messiah recognized by the disciples, where Simon Peter in Caesarea Philippi says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, so far so good. But we read in 1621, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed and be raised. 
No one saw that coming. But there it was. And so for a brief time, so um, this is followed by Peter's rebuke. Uh, Peter thinks he's a better theologian than Jesus and says to Jesus, excuse me, you've got it wrong, you're the Messiah. Yeah, you're supposed to be the king. What's this talk of you dying? And he is uh, rebuked by Jesus. And Jesus calls Peter's objection satanic. And then moreover, Jesus ups the ante by telling us that our fate is to echo that of Jesus. That if we want to follow him, we must take up a cross and follow him. So at this point in Matthew's gospel, um, we are making our way from Galilee to Jerusalem with kind of a heavy-hearted mandate. But God is gracious, and it's as though in this portion of Matthew's gospel, the reader, like the disciples, are being uh, reoriented to this new destiny that Jesus the Messiah talks about. This is maybe why we had the mountaintop experience and the Mount of Transfiguration, where the disciples and Jesus are given a reminder that even though things are going to get worse, here is the end goal. Here is Jesus. Uh, he's been transfigured in all of his glory. He's on the cosmic mountain as ruler of the world, and Moses and Elijah are there conversing with him and approving of him and what he does. And there, with these towering figures, including God and his incarnate son, are humble fishermen, people like you and me, dumbstruck but privileged. And before um, we left Matthew, the week before we went to our Advent passages, we had a discussion of the disciples coming down the mountain where they were talking about the role of Elijah and they were getting the chronology straight a little bit. And now we find ourselves at the bottom of the mountain. If you're thinking about coming up and down the mountain and Jesus having a little trouble when he gets to the bottom of the mountain with his followers, I wonder if that reminds you of someone. There was another figure in the Old Testament who was up in the mountain, who was an authoritative figure, and when he came down, he met some Israelites who were a little, uh, a little out of control, a little sinful. Uh, remember, Jesus comes down the mountain and he breaks the tablets because the Israelites are sinning. And here, when Jesus comes down the mountain on our first passage this afternoon, he encounters a man who comes to him and says, I have a son who has seizures, and I brought him to your disciples, and this much happened. And in response, <laughs> Jesus has an emotional moment. We don't see many of these, but here's one of them. And Jesus... Um, Maybe it had to do with his mountaintop experience. Jesus is generally pretty patient, but you know, there's a time for parents to show their, uh, their darker side sometimes and express a little frustration at how things are going. And so Jesus says, oh, faithless and skewed generation. I mean, I commissioned you disciples in chapter 10 and I gave you authority to expel demons and to do miracles. And now I come down the mountain and while we've been up there, I and the three disciples, uh, the, the remaining nine of you have kind of blown it, haven't you? Bring him here to me, and Jesus rebuked the demon and expelled it from him, and the boy was healed from that hour. Well, the disciples have encountered a bit of a setback, haven't they? They presumably prayed for the man's healing, and nothing happened. And so this really believe brings us, and you can see it on your outline on page four, to a first excursus, a little sidebar, where I want us to consider 
the pastoral issue of failed healings and unanswered prayers. Of failed healings and unanswered prayers. Well, in the second paragraph, verses 19 to uh, 21, or 19 and 20, uh, the disciples come and they say to Jesus, uh, what happened? And Jesus says, you have puny faith. And in fact, here their faith is so little that it's as though they have no faith at all. Uh, Jesus calls them faithless, which he normally reserves only for unbelievers. He normally calls his disciples ones of little faith, which he does as well. So here the disciples are at kind of a low point. Their faith is so low that they're looking up to a mustard seed grain. And with that little faith, it didn't go well. Jesus says, if you would have faith, in, in the, the original language, there's, a, um, there's a, a qualification there as though they don't, but if you would have faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible with you. You moved any mountains lately? I hope so. Of course, Jesus isn't talking about literal mountains, is he? He's talking about doing things that are impossible by human standards, relying upon God to do things that uh, you wouldn't in your wildest imagination expect to be done. And Jesus says, if you have faith, they can be done. It couldn't come from a higher authority than this. So what's up? Well, you might not be surprised to know that I have struggled a little bit this week with trying to deal with the reality of unanswered prayer and failed healings. And I want us to look at um, a few ways of being sure that we can bridge the gap, the gap between our faith, as little as it is, and the things that we want to, done, to have done and believe God would want to have done that don't get done. And the bottom line, of course, is faith. Faith is the primary thing. Faith is essential, and we Protestants love to talk about this. Christians generally love to talk about this, but Protestants love to trump faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, the word alone. You are saved by faith, not that of works, lest any man should boast. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift from God. So faith, it makes the difference between whether you go to heaven or whether you are uh, abandoned and left without God, which is hell. And faith makes the difference, Jesus says, between accomplishing tasks that you long to have done and which you believe should be done in God's name and they're not being done. That's Jesus's bottom line and there is no getting around it. There's no wanting to get around it. There's no point in getting around it. Earlier in this century, in the midst of the transition from modernity to postmodernity, Michel Foucault, who has been called one of the high priests of postmodernity, taught us that all forms of knowledge are power. And any time we try to sort of categorize somebody or we try to exercise our knowledge, we're exercising power over somebody. Well, there's a grain of truth to that, maybe more than a grain of truth to that. But let me tell you, the idea that there's power in knowledge pales in comparison to the idea that there's power in faith. Faith alone 
is the means by which we come into a relationship with God. Faith is what is required to move mountains, Jesus tells us. And faith, I believe, is not necessarily simply intellectual assent as much it is as it is relational consent. It's not so much intellectual assent, though that's uh, helpful and probably important at a key level, I believe in apologetics, in defending our faith, but it operates more at a relational level. It's allowing Jesus to do for you what you cannot do yourself. There's not a single good person in heaven. We're told that there are no good people apart from Jesus. The only people who get into heaven are the people who rely through faith on the goodness of Jesus to be there. And you remember a few weeks ago, I think maybe it was even last week when I was sharing the gospel, which I like to do explicitly, at least from time to time, I talked about getting to the gate of heaven. And if St. Peter or whoever says to you, why should you be here? This is really important, folks. Please hear me here. The answer is not I'm a churchgoer, not I'm an Anglican, not I give money, nothing of that kind at all. I don't deserve to be here, but your son died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sins, and I am trusting in him. I'm piggybacking upon his righteousness as the means by which I'm brought into heaven. And so that's the glory of coming to know the gospel. And so there it is, faith. It's important, it's so important that faith seemingly has the capacity to hold back the power of the atoning work of Jesus. I don't want to explore that mystery. It gets into predestination. It gets into the scope of the atonement. But it's faith that is the means by which, so we are told, we access the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And to be a Christian is not to be a good person. To be a Christian, good person is being okay, but that's not a Christian. I have a friend who likes to say, uh, going to the garage doesn't make you a car. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You, you, you are a Christian by virtue of who you are. And a Christian is somebody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, relies upon him solely to be the means by which they're made right with God, and is simply trusting in Jesus and basking in the glory of his goodness and grace. Let me jump ahead and show you a little picture of that. In the third scene, um, and I'm jumping ahead of the title, but it, 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 uh, um, I outlined, but it, uh, it fits. If you look down at the bottom of page four, under lesser points, you remember the story about where Jesus turns to uh, Simon Peter and he says, yeah, we should probably pay that tax. We don't have to, but let's not offend the Jewish authorities. And then he says to Peter, go to the lake, cast a hook and grab the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a four drachma coin. Now, four drachmas was enough for Jesus to pay the temple tax and for Simon Peter to pay the temple tax. Taking that, give it to them. Most translations say for me and you, but it actually is in place of me and you. Here in the midst of this story about the fish, I wonder if you've noticed it. Jesus pays Peter's atonement tax. That's exactly what Jesus does for you and me. And Peter in this passage and elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew represents the disciples. And so the gift of salvation is foreshadowed here. The hook pulls out a fish and out of it comes. 
from the sign of Jonah, as it were, from out of the mouth of a fish comes enough money to pay the tax that originated as an atonement tax in Exodus chapter 31. A wonderful touch. My friends, faith is important. And the, the, the vital thing, we'll come to this in a minute, is, is, is not so much kind of, oh, I got to muster up a whole lot of faith here. But faith is very objective. It's faith in him, in God. And it's more up to God and believing what God has done than your kind of conjuring up notions of faith. It's very objective. The Lutherans have got that part right. Well, in addition to faith, there's also prayer. In Mark's version of the gospel, which we have um, on, the, um, on page uh, 8, if you turn to page 8, Mark gives a much fuller account. Mark's gospel is shorter, but I'll tell you, friends, Matthew abbreviates a lot of Mark's gospel messages because Matthew wants to get to the teaching of Jesus. But look at verse 29. It's at the top of page 9. Jesus said to them in response to their question there, why could we not cast it out? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, there's not a contradiction there. You can't pray unless you have faith. But Jesus adds, Matthew, or Mark, here's, here's another tone in Jesus' response that emphasizes prayer. And prayer is important too. And as well, we talked about this in the staff meeting this week. I think Sandra brought it up and she said, well, a lot of times we don't have because we don't ask. And earlier in Matthew's gospel in chapters 7 and 8, we saw Jesus talking about, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. And in James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus teaches us to persist in asking, not because God is hard of hearing, not because he's ill-willed, but because um, God has mercy and you've already won God's favor. And to persist in prayer is to show faith. And so those are some ways in which I think we can bridge the gap. I think also of possible relevance or help in accounting for any remaining gap between our faith and the accomplishment of miracles and such is to consider a few things. One I've already mentioned, the object of our faith. We're not to have faith in miracles. We're not to sort of have faith that, uh, you know, if I, if I pray for something, it's going to happen. We were to believe that, but we're to have faith not in the things happening, but in God in God's ability. Over the Christmas break, um, I was at the cottage and we didn't have water. And I went to the local town where we have um, the watering hole. It's uh, an artesian well that, that produces water in this center of the town. And sometimes it doesn't come. And I was with a group of people and they were waiting for the water to come. And the woman said, oh, no, they say it'll be here in like five, 10 minutes. And I was tempted to say, well, let me pray. But something came and said, well, you know, what if, what if God doesn't answer that prayer? You're going to make God look kind of foolish, right? So there I got my wires crossed because we're told to pray in faith. And if the water doesn't come, I mean, I can still say to Jesus, I, I did my job. I, I asked, I prayed, right? <laughs> And so this is where the God dimension comes. I don't take responsibility if God decides not to answer the prayer. That is all up to God. We have our job to do, and that is to pray in faith. Our faith is in God, and we demonstrate our faith in God by praying for miracles. And we don't measure 
God and his care for us by the response that comes because it's God focused and we know that God is willing and God is able but God is ultimately in charge and sometimes I think God says you know if you knew the big picture you'd understand why that's probably not a really good idea right now and my answer is no we leave that to the mystery of God but my point is don't chicken out on praying in faith because you're worried about giving embarrassment to God. That's God's business. And I've never yet in a hospital scene ever had anybody express disappointment when you offered a prayer for them when they need healing. They'll say thank you. And they're just profoundly grateful. And even if there's no change, they know you care and you pointed to God who cares. And there's ministry in and of that in itself. I want to refer to you uh, just um, without going into a whole lot of detail on page um, eight of your outline. Uh, the response of one theologian who I think keeps some helpful things in mind. It's that of uh, Hagner uh, from Fuller Seminary. And in his commentary, he says this, bottom of page seven. In Matthew, the question concerns faith even as small as a mustard seed as opposed to no faith. With the smallest conceivable amount of faith, the possibilities are limitless. Top of page eight now. And to emphasize this, only hyperbole will serve. Now comes the gap issue. What about the times when it doesn't happen? Yet the conditions which can become limitations are also repeatedly presumed in the gospel. Conditions which can become limitations. And then Hagner reminds us that the passage pertains to the signs of the kingdom, not miracles of any kind. This is a special time when Jesus is showing that the kingdom of God has appeared on earth in him. And so he's doing futuristic things in the present to demonstrate the reality of that kingdom, which is partly yet to come. So these are um, sign miracles in a way, and not just the kind of miracles that one might expect at any time. He, said, he reminds us also that it applies also to the uniqueness of the Apostles' Commission. Uh, these were the Apostles who were commissioned, and presumably their relationship with Jesus and his commission to them was not necessarily identical to that of you and me. We are small-a Apostles. Though he reminds us the pericope is not without its application to Matthew's church and the church of our day, where, where healing, too, may be expected. And then he reminds us of the recept receptivity of those in need is also a factor. It's not just the faith in the one who wants to affect the healing, but it is faith on the part of the one who wants to be healed. That also plays a role. And then he reminds us that it is God who always constitutes the final determinant. God is the one who decides, and that's where it should be left. He reminds us. Healings require faith, yet faith, even genuine faith, whether of the healer or the would-be healer, cannot demand healing. Disciples, moreover, cannot depend on a mechanistic approach to the works of the kingdom. With faith, all things are possible, but only within the sovereign and sometimes mysterious will of God. In this instance, as we come to know, it was God's will for the healing of the man's son, but that healing was at first hindered by the uncertainty of the disciples. Nothing is impossible for the disciple of Jesus who with faith works within the established will of God. I was going to underline that and invite you to do so if you wish. It is therefore the case that not every failure in the performance or reception of healing is the result solely of insufficient faith. 
So my friends, faith is central to becoming a Christian, to be going to heaven, and also to seeing God work in sometimes miraculous ways in our lives as we respond to his calling. The second excursus, and uh, these excursus are actually a big chunk of the sermon, don't worry, I'm conscious of the time. Um, not as much as I'd like you to be, some of you might be wanting to say. Has to do with epilepsy and demon possession. If you look at Matthew, if you look at Mark's account, most people lot to me like epilepsy. Yet, if you really look at it again, and I've looked at it again and again, um, the, there's a spirit which causes the person to get into fits and to go into fits. And so I think the safest way to look at this passage is not to equate it with epilepsy and certainly not to adopt this nauseating idea that we know better than the gospel writers and this was primitive superstition and they just misinterpreted epilepsy for demon possession. There's actually a word for epilepsy in the ancient world and Matthew was no doubt familiar with it and none of the gospel writers use that term. It's related to our own word for epilepsy. This was moonstruck, which implies kind of a cosmic dimension. And so I think it's safe to say that the man had fits and starts, and his symptoms were very epileptic-like, but it wasn't kind of the sort of epilepsy that um, you and I might um, associate or that um, um, one or two of the doctors who were here would necessarily sort of say was a, was a firm diagnosis. I saw for the first time a few months ago a person with an epileptic seizure, and it was no pretty picture. There was loss of control, there was scary, there was foaming at the mouth. And in the case of this particular person, they had been to the doctor, and they said, you know, we saw you have a seizure while you were in the hospital, and there's a, there's a marker on an ECG for epilepsy. And we don't see that marker in this case. So in your case, it's probably psychosomatic. So even there is a case where somebody has what appears to be epilepsy, but doesn't have the marker for epilepsy. And psychosomatic epileptic episodes are no less dramatic than those that uh, have the ECG marker, I presume. But they knew that I was a, they knew that I was a priest and there was my, my sister uh, relative was there attending to the person. She was a doctor, she was well cared for. And so I just sat back and prayed. And I had my eyes closed and I just sort of thought, I'm just gonna stay out of the way and I'm gonna pray. But I couldn't help but notice that I have never felt such a dramatic connection between the prayers that I was offering and the response on the part of the person. Um, and it was commented on by that individual's family as well. They said, you know, when you prayed, something was happening. It, 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 it was lessened, the effect was lessened. So I think that often um, the evil one uh, not always, but the evil one can sometimes take advantage of the weaknesses that we have, whether they be physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and wants to just kind of work his way in there. And we don't need to sort of decide what is what, where psychology ends off and where um, spiritual dimensions enter in. We're Christians, we believe in prayer, we believe in the power of God to affect change. And so uh, we should just go ahead and pray. But we dare not turn to someone with epilepsy and say, well, you're just demon possessed, that would be that would be horrific. And the only case where you would justify that is in this passage, and it's not called epilepsy here. So we'd be careful, very careful. 
All right, the Messiah with a death wish, verses 22 and 23, and with this we'll move more quickly. Verse 22, they being gathered together in the Galilee. Notice being gathered together in the Galilee. That ought to remind us of chapter 28. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he said, tell them to go to the meeting place in Galilee. And so here they are at a meeting place in Galilee. And Jesus says to them, I want to remind you about the bad news. The Son of Man is about to be given over to the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. Our response to that, my friends, is that of the disciples, grief and sorrow. It was my sins that caused him to hang upon that cross. It was your sins that caused him to hang upon that cross, and it was a violent death. And it wasn't Jesus' fault. It was yours. It was mine. So salvific. It accomplished our salvation. One of my favorite hymns is that one that goes, were you there when they crucified my Lord, that Negro spiritual. And somehow you just feel the pain of the person who's singing it, you know, that here's this thing happening on the cross and it's my fault and it's awful. But there's kind of a reverential wonder about it at the same time. So we pause and should pause to remember that we're an invitation to a party well it is in the end and very often but it's kind of a gruesome party it involves suffering and it involves going through the path of jesus where the way up is down and now we come to the third episode that of the canvassers i just had to chuckle because, uh, you know, we've all done this. You're at home, the doorbell rings, it's supper time. You go to the door and there's this wonderful, nice person with this tag, you know, and they've got this great cause. And they said, hi, I'm with this society. And I was just wondering if we could count on you. And you're wanting to say, you know, I'm in my home, I'm making supper. I got all of these kind of questions that come. Well, this is what happened. Jesus and the disciples come to Capernaum and they're in the house of Peter, which was their home base in Capernaum. And somebody knocked at the door, and it's the duo drachma tax collectors. And the cause is worthy. We need to keep up the temple. And it says in the book of Exodus that we can collect a tax for you to keep up the temple. Well, Jesus is thinking, a couple of weeks, and we're not going to need a temple, right? Like, the church is the temple. And so Jesus, Peter answers on behalf of Jesus. I, I'd like to say more than once that uh, my friend told me that Peter is a, a guy who says, uh, ready, shoot, aim. And so Peter speaks for Jesus and says, well, of course he does. And then when they get into the house, Jesus says, um, who is that at the door? And did you answer on my behalf? What do you think, Simon? And then Jesus here makes a claim to his own divinity. And he says, well, if this is kind of a royal tax, I mean, if God is, uh, if God is the boss and we're trying to keep up the house of God, then presumably the owners of the king don't need to contribute, right? It's the subjects to the king. And then Jesus says, so we are exempt. And he includes Peter and thereby you and me in that as well. We are sons and daughters of the king and we don't need to contribute to the maintenance of the temple. 
but so that we don't offend the Jews. Let's do it. This is here in Matthew, an idea and a theme that comes up in Pauline literature. And on uh, page 10 of your handout, I've just reminded us of a couple of places in Paul where Paul says the same thing. In Romans chapter 14, verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Continuing the underlined part on page 10, Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble for what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Notice how it ends. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's the centrality of faith. So as I was thinking about how we might apply this, I was reminded of the reputation that we as Christians have in our neighborhood. They probably know that you might be generous and committed to the church. But if you're not willing to help out the local hockey team, which is kind of a good neighborhood effort, what kind of, a, kind of a reputation does that establish? Well, you know, those religious people, they, they, they give to their own kind, but gosh, you know, we're all in this together. We ought, to be, we ought to be lending a little hand here to the community and such. And I think that's a fair application, is that through any perception of us being um, ungenerous or unkind when it comes to other causes. And here was a cause that was doomed. One of the reasons why we know the gospel was written before 70 AD was because after 70 AD, the Romans turned it into uh, a pagan temple for one of the Greek gods. And Jesus certainly would not have been condoning the paying of a tax to, uh, to, to that particular temple. So our reputation as Christians is important. And it's a reminder. Sometimes I, I actually will say this. Well, you know, Sick Kids Hospital is a really popular uh, cause, and I like to give to ones that are a little bit less popular, if you don't mind. Then I'm thinking, well, sick children's hospital. I mean, we don't want to get the, the, uh, the reputation that we Christians are anything other than responsible, generous-minded uh, citizens when it comes to the, uh, the concerns of others. Let me wrap up with an illustration. This really is the end. Experiences at the bottom of the mountain. On Tuesday of this week, in California, a man drove a Tesla over a cliff and the car fell 250 plus feet down to the bottom of the cliff and landed on its wheels. And people looked over the cliff and they noticed in the binoculars that at least one person was alive in the car. And so the helicopter came and they, they lowered ropes down with stretchers and rescue squads came and they rappelled down the slope. And they attended to the individuals who were in the car, and there, was, uh, there were two children, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, as well as another adult, and the man attempted murder. Uh, a, a grim, grim story. Tragedies happen at the bottom of the hill. That was a pretty grim one, but it didn't turn out as bad as we might have guessed. The tragedies or situations that we find in our story today, that of the father who complains, the Messiah with a death wish, and the canvassers who come with an ask, were relatively mild. But the solution is the same, because the way by which those people were rescued at the bottom of that cliff is the same as he.
You see, to get down a cliff, you have to wrap a rope around your body. It's called rappelling. I don't know if you've ever done it, but you put a rope between your legs, you wrap it around your left shoulder and around behind, and then you, you lean out on the cliff as you feed the, the, uh, the, the rope line. And you're literally sort of at a 45 degree angle as you go down the cliff. When I thought about that and I saw those pictures of repellers descending to the crowd, I thought, you know, faith is the answer to the predicament at the bottom of the mountain. We need to put our faith in God as the means by which to learn and experience and grow from those situations that happen at the bottom of the mountain. Miraculously, it was called. All four people in that car survived. And uh, it was through rescuers trusting ropes that they came to redemption. Our rescue comes by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, or you want to be reminded again of how to do it, it's simple. You just say, Jesus, I'm a mess. I can't fix myself. I can't earn my way. And in your work on the cross, as the sole means by which I'm made right with you. And then the magic happens. It's the story of Christianity. People often feel a sense of relief and comfort and peace and joy and empowerment. And whether you feel it or not, it's a reality. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. May God grant us that faith. Amen.